Welcome back to Politics is Everything, where we'll be discussing the Michigan primary, where President Joe Biden barely managed to eke out a win over the uncommitted vote by a mere 81 to 13 percent, while former President Donald Trump overwhelmingly won the Republican primary by 68 percent to 26.6 percent. I'm Kara ong And I'm Kyle Kondik. I think you did kind of capture the, the sort of nature of the, the reporting there. I think it's fair to say neither neither were particularly close. I, I've been told that we're irreverent on this podcast, and I want to lean into that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and I mean, you know, and I, I wrote this in our, our reaction that came out in Crystal Ball on Wednesday morning, but like, I do think there's some of this is really straining to try to add drama to what is a very undramatic primary season. And that doesn't mean that you can't sift through the results and try to draw some conclusions, but um, you know, we're used to primary season being really busy and really competitive, and it just hasn't been. So there's, a, I think, a desire amongst analysts and reporters and whatnot to try to look for things when, you know, to try to be able to tell a story where you're trying to dig through a lot uh, to, to, to do that. I, I agree. I think it really is interesting that this, that there has been this uncommitted movement, and it is going to be playing out, especially in the so-called blue wall states that have really been pivotal to presidential elections over the last couple of cycles. Um, You know, but I think just more broadly from a social movement perspective, like it is absolutely important that people have that opportunity to express their voice. But the way in which the media has been spinning this and spinning in one particular direction for one party and spinning in another direction for the other party is, well, What we know from the literature is that if there is a bias in the media, it's towards the most dramatic because it's about getting clicks and it's about ratings. Right. So. So that's. Yeah. And and that's I think that's that's part of what I was trying to say is just that that I I, I do think probably more is being made of these primary results and and probably is warranted. So uncommitted got 13 percent. Biden got 81, as you mentioned. And then then, you know, a a few other votes went to a few other candidates and write ins and whatnot. Um. On one hand, I guess you could say maybe you know uncommitted. I think did a great job of framing its 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 sort of very low bar in the press, and so it was like, oh, we want ten thousand votes, and it's like you know particularly because the turnout was so high. I mean, it was definitely going to exceed that, um, you know, and 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 also you know not every single person who voted uncommitted was voting uncommitted because of what's going on in Gaza. You know, I mean, there's going to be an uncommitted vote regardless, and. Um, there, this is sometimes used as a protest vote. Um, we saw that there was a, a little bit of a, a kind of similar protest vote against Obama when he was on the ballot in 2012 as the um, as the incumbent president. Um, now, you know, you did see in areas that were pretty heavily Arab American, like Dearborn, um, you did see uncommitted do very well and uh, way better than it did statewide. You know, getting getting uh, clear majorities of the vote, um, and that we should probably interpret as being more about the. Um, about trying to send a message on Gaza, but we also don't necessarily know what those voters are going to do in November. And um, we're also not talking about places that have a huge number of people and a huge number of votes. So again, that's not to say it doesn't matter. Um, and pre- American presidential elections are decided on the margins. Biden does have a little bit more wiggle room in Michigan than he has in Wisconsin and, and Pennsylvania in terms of looking at his 2020 margin. So uh, again, I, it, it's important, but I also think probably overstated. Well, let's move on to other actually more consequential news this week. Senator Mitch McConnell 
announced his intention to step down from his role as Senate Republican leader, and that will take effect in November of 2024. It will end the longest run of a Senate party leader in history. He has been the leader for 18 years. He'll still serve out the remainder of his term through January of 2027. His tenure in the Senate began amidst the Reagan Revolution in 1984, and he's run the GOP conference since 2007. I just wanted to reflect on on some of his legacy a bit and would love your thoughts as well, Kyle. Most importantly, I think the Supreme Court and transforming the federal judiciary more broadly, you know, is is a big part of his legacy. And, and he would say that himself in 2019, he said that the decision not to fill Justice Antonin Scalia's vacancy was the, quote, most consequential thing I've ever done and among his his proudest moments. Under his leadership, the, the Senate has successfully confirmed three conservative Supreme Court justices more than 200 lower court judges, and shifted the ideological balance of the courts to to be more conservative-leaning. Um, and, you know, this is translated to important decisions. I think, most importantly, the Dobbs decision that overturned Roe v. Wade, um, striking down affirmative action, and and recent decisions that favor religious freedom over, over gay rights. So, um, you know, consequential um, uh, moment uh, for for the GOP. I'd also McConnell has is an incredibly astute um, leader um, and and really has been an amazing fundraiser for the party too. just in terms of consequences for this year, he has with with uh, outside groups that are aligned with him have raised uh, nearly $95 million up through January of, of this year to win back the majority in the Senate, which is something that we've been talking a little bit about um, on the podcast, the Republican chances of, of regaining the Senate. So, you know, he's also been consequential, um, including through this year on on the fundraising side for the party. I would also, I, I just naturally think about the decision to hold the the Scalia seat open in 2016 during that election as being the thing that I probably associate the most with with McConnell, just in looking at his long tenure at the head of the Republicans in the Senate. Uh, I also think about uh, the sort of road not taken that has direct implications on this 2024 presidential election on the the the, the second impeachment of Donald Trump in that. Um, there were a handful of Republican senators who went along with conviction after January 6, 2021, uh, and what happened that day. But McConnell, after maybe indicating that he could go could go either way on that, decided not to vote for conviction. And you know, it's possible that if he had voted for conviction, he could have brought enough Republican senators along to get to the you know the two thirds needed um, for conviction, which uh, would have opened up the possibility of a subsequent vote. Um, that would have required a simple majority that would um, have barred Trump from running for office again. And so on one hand, you look at McConnell and say, well, he's not that close to Trump. He, uh, um, you know, he probably would have preferred a different Republican nominee, but he had an opportunity to basically to push the Republican Party to move on past Trump. And he decided not to take that. And so and look, it's possible that, you know, that there are. If Trump had been barred from office, maybe he could have sued and been able to to restore his right to run. I mean, you know, who knows how that would have shaken out? Um, and I understand the, the you know, there's always this 
push and pull within the Republican Party in which office holders who may be skeptical of Trump face pressure, not just from Trump, but also from their own voters to support Trump. Um, but that was a key decision um, that, that that McConnell decided not to do. And, and again, that that has helped set up the um, this this rematch between Biden and Trump that we seem to be headed towards. So um, those are the two things that really stand out to me is the, is the keeping the court seat open uh, in 2016 and then the, uh, um, the the decision not to support conviction uh, for Trump in the second impeachment. Let's move over to New York and talk about what's going on there. The state assembly and the Senate both passed a new New York congressional map that was signed into law by Governor Kathy Hochul. And it's going to go into effect for the 2024 congressional cycle, but will not uh, impact the upcoming uh, special election that's taking place in the 26th district of New York. The major changes uh, can be categorized as impacting sort of three different areas of the state, the Long Island area, the Bronx area, and the Hudson Valley area. Um, and so it's going to be New York districts 1, 2, and 3, 14, 15, 16, and 18, 19, 20, 21, with all of the other districts left unchanged. Um, in the Bronx district, diving down there, basically what what happened is some of the black population is being consolidated from three districts to two, and then moving some of the Hispanic Latine population in the South Bronx over to uh, Representative um, Ocasio-Cortez's New York 14 district. In the Hudson Valley area, Brandon Williams uh, now is going to have a more Democratic-leaning district, and Democrat Paul Tonko and Republican Elise Stefanik's districts um, have a little bit of swaps um, uh, in in how they are are constituted, but overall no real net change in the compositions of of their districts. And just, then Tom Swazi is short up. <laughs> yeah, and he you know he just won this very closely watched special election in in the seat he used to hold prior to 2022 um, that George Santos then won and then was expelled from, and uh, that district went from like Biden plus eight to Biden plus eleven. So you know in terms of the the race for the for the overall House majority in 2024. Um, the Swazi seat gets a little bit better for Democrats. Uh, you mentioned Brandon Williams, a first-term Republican who is has an upstate district, has Syracuse and some other some other places upstate. Um, his district uh, gets about three or four points more Democratic, so it becomes a double-digit Biden seat. Um, and so that that impacts our rating or ratings for the crystal ball. We, we, went, we pushed Brandon Williams from toss-up to leans Democratic. Um, we also moved Swazi from leans Democratic to likely Democratic in our ratings as he, you know, when he was an incumbent, he kind of held down that district fairly comfortably. And so um, I think he maybe moves out of being a really big um, Republican target. And then the other change we made actually had nothing to do with redistricting. Um, we were just sort of waiting to see if his district would change. But Anthony D'Esposito, who holds the district directly south of Swazi's district that covers a lot of uh, both those districts cover a lot of uh, Nassau County um, in the you know New York City su- suburbs slash exurbs. Um, he holds the bluest district that any Republican holds in the entire country. It's a Biden plus about fourteen and a half seat. And after the New York three special election, um, that sort of you know di- didn't really suggest that there was some sort of huge Republican trend in Nassau, which you could argue twenty twenty two showed. But uh, we decided that that because you know, uh, uh, in a presidential year, you'd expect that district to perform 
uh, differently and more democratic leaning that, that we also moved the Esposito from toss up to leans democratic. So um, you do see uh, some better house ratings for Democrats in New York, but it's also not some sort of wholesale gerrymander the way you saw in like North Carolina, for instance, where, um, you know, re- Republicans uh, 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 change the map in a way that very clearly benefits them. Uh, the de- the changes in New York do benefit Democrats, but again, it's not like the uh, the, the gerrymander that uh, Democrats tried to impose in 2022, but that was thrown out by the courts. Next week is Super Tuesday on March 5th. Uh, I wonder if you can give us a preview of what may happen in California's top two primary. California is one of just five states that are also holding, in addition to the presidential primary, um, their first congressional primaries of the season. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what we should expect in in California. Yeah. So uh, one of the things that we sometimes watch is that the, you know, the the top two primary can can sometimes be somewhat of a preview of the fall. And if you go back through history since the current the start of the current top two system in 2012, it's sort of the a little bit further back in 2012 2014. Uh, it was pretty common for Democrats to do a lot better in the in in November than they did in the primary in terms of the Democratic share of the top two votes. So there were a lot of instances where Republicans would get a higher share of the vote in the first round of voting, and then Democrats would come back and win the district in the fall. That is sort of evened out over time to the point where in 2022, um, the in all in all 52 districts. The party that got a higher share of the two-party vote in the first round also won the district in uh, in in November. And again, you know, fifty-two districts, and there are a number out there that are competitive. You know, that is a, a fairly decent-sized chunk of House seats in terms of the whole composition uh, of the House. And so, you know, we are going to be watching to see what those what that first round of voting looks like. You know, you, you can't base all of your projections based on it, but it does give us sort of a decent um, a decent baseline. The general rule of thumb, though, is that if it, if the Democrats do get over 50 percent in the two party vote in the first round, they always go on to win the district. Now, those sorts of trends are, you know, you you, you base too much on them. You might end up being wrong at some point because those things are not written in stone. Um, but that is something to watch. And the other advice I would give about following California is that we know from history that it just takes a long time, several weeks for New York or for California to um process all the ballots and to uh, check everything out and to produce a final vote count. So don't, you know, don't look at the results on Wednesday morning and assume that that's going to be what the results are when the when, when everything is finalized several weeks from from now. Kyle, one final topic to turn to this week, and that is the new analysis on the crystal ball by our colleague Miles Coleman, which delves into part two of analysis he started last week about the history of Senate and presidential tickets. There's one book that I particularly like on this topic, which is by Barry Burden and David Kimball, um, which is called Why Americans Split Their Tickets. They argue that divided government is actually produced unintentionally. They also examine um, uh, voting patterns in presidential House and Senate elections from 1952 to 19. And, And in their book, they argue that the ideological positions of candidates don't really matter in American elections, but voters prefer centrist candidates rather than a mix of extremists. So when candidates of opposing parties adopt similar platforms, ticket splitting arises. Um, So 
for voters, what's going on is the ideological differences between the parties blur. And there's other considerations that come into play, such as candidate characteristics that tend to exert a greater influence in their voting decisions. But our colleague, uh, Miles, gives us a little bit of a rundown this week um, and really focuses on 1984 forward, where there's more than a dozen Republican states um, uh, at the Senate level that sent Democrats to the Senate in those presidential election years. Um, In the 1990s, Democrats were successful at the presidential level. Of course, Bill Clinton was president and split ticket voting tended to benefit Republicans more in the Senate. So that became really an exception in the post-war era. And then finally, in the 2000s, um, Democrats have benefited more from that split ticket dynamic, um, first under George W. Bush um, and and then with Barack Obama in 2008 and uh, 2012. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what we should take away from this history of split ticket voting. I think a lot of it is that we we sort of told the story of of the history in order to kind of point out that the history isn't really predictive in that, you know, there are all these interesting split ticket outcomes, particularly in like the 70s and 80s. And even, you know, even even more recently than that, and, you know, Democrats generally were the beneficiaries of of this ticket splitting. Um, They had kind of candidates who were perceived as being more, you know, more moderate in, in red leaning states who've had some success. You know, the retiring Joe Manchin, I guess, is a good modern example of, of that kind of person who held on in West Virginia, even as that one time very Democratic state became very Republican um, and is poised to elect two Republican senators or have two Republican senators at the same time um, uh, starting next year for the first time since the late 1950s. You just don't see that level of uh, of ticket splitting much anymore. You know, one kind of topical historical example, though, is that even though the presidential and Senate results were not nearly as connected in the 80s as they are today, um, the the sort of presidential trend could end up being helpful um, in creating coattails. And so I think about Mitch McConnell, who you know we were just talking about. He won his first race in 1984, barely over a Democratic incumbent, but um, Reagan, of course, did really well all, all, all over the country in 1984, including in Kentucky. I'm sure that was helpful to to, to Mitch McConnell, even though the races in terms of their margins looked looked a lot different, and you'd expect them to, to be more connected um, today. You know, I also think about this in terms of like uh, you know Larry Hogan running in Maryland as a Republican, the f- popular former governor there. You know, I think that you know we we moved that race from safe Democratic to likely Democratic. I think if a race like that was happening a generation ago, we'd probably clearly look at it as like a toss-up or maybe even that Hogan would be favored because he would um, be able to generate a massive amount of crossover support. I think he probably will get crossover support in this election, but uh, you know, the Democrats should win Maryland by you know, 25, 30, 35 points in the presidential race. And getting that kind of crossover used to be common, but now is really difficult. One state that you all point out where, you know, it may be most interesting to watch is Montana um, because it is a toss up contest this year. And it's also the state that has split its ticket the most in this post-war era. Yeah, Montana is really interesting in that it is, you know, been a longtime Republican state at the presidential level with only a, a, a few exceptions over the past many decades. Uh, but it also has a, a very long history of of voting for Democratic senators. 
Uh, and look, maybe that streak ends this year, but but certainly Montana has shown um, even in recent times that it's been willing to, to to split its ticket for for Democratic governors and for and for Democratic senators. Montana also is a a smaller state, which maybe um, makes it easier for someone like John Tester to kind of build a, a reputation and do retail politics. Uh, I don't know if it's a coincidence that um, some of the few states that have crossover senators are like Maine, West Virginia, and Montana. Um, Ohio and Wisconsin are the other two right now, and you know, Sherrod Brown is on the ballot as well in, in Ohio, trying to win as a Democrat in a Republican-leaning presidential state. But um, you know, you, you do wonder if the ability to build a personal brand may be helpful in trying to mitigate um, this sort of straight-ticket voting. But um, you know, it's a, it's this is the this is going to be you know, Tester's had a lot of tough elections. This is going to be arguably his toughest. I'd say the same thing about Sherrod Brown and. Part of it is that, you know, what they what they're doing uh, serving as crossover senators used to be very common and now just is not. Kyle, thank you so much for your insights and analyses this week. It's been great talking with you. Thanks, Kara. Listeners, you can find a link to the new crystal ball analysis by Miles Coleman, the post-war history of Senate presidential ticket splitting part one and part two at the link in the episode notes. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Politics is Everything. Editing and production was done by me, Kara Ong Whaley. You can learn more about the Center for Politics and its work to strengthen democracy on our website at centerforpolitics.org. You can also engage with us on social media at center number four politics. We welcome your suggestions and questions for future episodes. Thanks so much for tuning in. Until next time. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.